All right, welcome back. We have one more panel uh, for the day, and it's part of, I say, our afternoon commitment to dealing with civil society. We're going to be talking to folks who are not politicians, which is always a good thing, I think. Uh, at any rate, uh, I would like to, to go to our next panel. It's going to look at sort of other perspectives. We're going to talk about business. We're going to talk about civil society. We're going to talk about from academia. And we're going to start off here. I want to introduce Rob Lapsley who is the pre uh, president of the California Business Roundtable. So we're going to get a business perspective here. Before that, he was with the chamber. And we're thrilled to have him here. He was in a speaker. Some of you may remember he was a speaker at our conference on recovering from COVID in a post-COVID economy. And we're, we're glad to have him for that. We're glad to have him back. Next up is uh, Michael Weinberg, who is uh, with California Forward, which is sort of a ubiquitous organization uh, out there. Everywhere <laughs> we went in California, they said, oh, have you talked to California Forward yet? So, uh, so the answer was yes. Uh, we had talked to him. Uh, Micah spoke earlier at a conference we did on housing and homelessness uh, back uh, a year ago. And we're glad to have him back here today to talk to us a little bit about. And then uh, coming in via Zoom, we have Sarah Kimberlin, who uh, is another person whose name kept popping up all around California. As, as we talked about, they said, oh, well, if you're talking about poverty, you've got to talk to her. So we're really glad to have her today. Uh, she's with the California's uh, but, uh, Policy and Budget Center, which is with Stanford. And uh, we're thrilled to have her, a well-known expert on poverty. And actually, I'm going to turn it over to you, Sarah, to start things off uh, for this session here. So just. Go ahead and take it where you want to go. Great, thank you so much, Michael. Um, I'll say I'll start by saying this may sound like an odd thing to say, but I am feeling like it's great to be here talking about poverty and inequality in California and sharing uh, the California Budget and Policy Center's perspective on these challenges. Um, I, I say it's a great thing because there are literally millions of California parents and children and seniors and workers and community members who are struggling right now to make ends meet and keep a roof over their heads. And so we really need our policymakers and our thought leaders to be focusing on this problem and this challenge and so that we can you know, move forward in making progress to address it. So it's great to be here. Um, just to quickly introduce the California Budget and Policy Center, we actually are not um, affiliated with Stanford, although I have a myself a personal affiliation with the Stanford Center on Poverty and Inequality. But I'm here today representing the California Budget and Policy Center, which is an independent, data-driven organization that focuses on evaluating public policies and their effects, specifically on Californians with low and middle incomes. Um, and specifically focusing on analyses um, that uh, it can help inform the efforts to advance policies that improve the lives of Californians who've been blocked from sharing the state's prosperity. So especially Californians in low and middle income families, and then also um, particularly thinking about Asian, Black, Latinx, and Pacific Islander Californians and other Californians of color. Um, so I think I should start by saying, being clear that the Budget Center was not involved in the development of this report or its recommendations. So um, as I'll speak about in a minute, in many cases, we would actually recommend different policy approaches, although there are some points of alignment. Um, but we appreciate the opportunity to participate in this, this panel of other views um, so that we can comment on and critique this report and just present our perspective on what California needs to reduce poverty and inequality. So it's great to be here with the other speakers here. Um, in terms of my comments here, Here's how I'm going to structure what I'll say. So I'll start with three overarching comments about uh, the topic and the general policy approaches that were outlined in the and then Cato's report. Um, and then I will talk about the Budget Center's perspective, um, focusing just on three areas highlighted in the report. So housing, yeah. uh, safety net programs, and economic inclusion. Um, and then I will... Uh, well, it's supposed to end at 3.15. Um, so in terms of my yeah, overarching this, comments... This is the Zoom that's... Yeah. You know, like the guest speaker, this is the what's actually going on in the room, Jeremy's fat head. Sorry, we've had some, some sort of technical glitch here. Great, sorry, thank you. Um, so as I said, I will, I'll start with three overarching comments about the topic um, and the general policy approaches, and then I'll talk about our perspective on housing, safety net programs, and economic conclusions. Uh, sorry, economic inclusion, and then I'll finish with some final thoughts. So um, going first to the overarching comments, um, 
just to, first of all, just to acknowledge, like the Budget Center definitely agrees that poverty and inequality are among California's greatest and most urgent challenges. Um, and I think it really presents an opportunity that there is such a nonpartisan or multipartisan understanding that we collectively need to focus on addressing these issues. And I also really appreciate the focus on working to identify concrete steps that we can take to reduce poverty and inequality through public policy. Um, you know, there are definitely cases where we at the Budget Center would not agree with the specific recommendations in the report. Um, we would recommend other policy approaches, but we can definitely agree on the fact that there is a lot that our state and local and national uh, leaders have the authority and the capacity to do that would make a real difference. Um, and with challenges that loom as large as poverty, I think people can sometimes be tempted to just throw up their hands and say, well, that's too big of a problem to really solve. We can't really address that. And But in fact, there is a lot that we are already doing that is working and there's more that we can do. So it's great to have a conversation that's really focused on problem solving and on moving forward. Um, my second overarching comment um, is just that um, at a high level, not surprisingly, uh, given the perspective of the Cato Institute, I think many of the recommendations in the report really focus on reducing or eliminating government regulations and requirements and um, government involvement. Um, and there are sometimes cases where the Budget Center would agree that this approach makes sense. Um, I would say, though, a key question we ask at the Budget Center is who benefits and who is harmed by regulations or requirements? And specifically, is there an inequitable burden on Californians with low incomes and especially Californians of color? Um, and so in cases where regulations or requirements are creating harmful barriers to people accessing the support they need to meet their basic needs, then removing those barriers often makes sense. So for example, uh, the Budget Center agrees that fines and fees in the criminal justice system should be reduced and eliminated because of their inequitable impact on Californians with low incomes and particularly Californians of color. Um, at the same time, um, there is an important role for government in protecting workers from exploitation in protecting tenants from unscrupulous landlords and just more generally in protecting the safety and well-being and fair treatment of Californians with low incomes and Californians of color. So I think that would be a point where uh, we would sometimes not be in agreement with, uh, with the perspective here, but. Um, and then finally, uh, from a big picture perspective, um, I think it's really important to note that if we really want to move the needle on reducing poverty and inequality in California, we're gonna need to go far beyond, we, we really need to go beyond just reducing the scope of what the public sector provides. Um, in fact, as the report really helpfully notes, there would be many more Californians living in poverty without the public supports and public systems that the government provides. Um, and so if we really want to make a difference in reducing poverty and inequality, then overall we need more public investment. We need public investment in strategies that we know are effective um, in order to tackle these challenges. So um, those are my overarching comments. Um, and then I wanna move on now to just talking about some more specifics about um, which policies are effective in tackling different aspects of the state's challenges. So specifically sharing the Budget Center's perspective on in the areas of housing, uh, safety net programs, and then economic inclusion. So in terms of housing and homelessness, um, I think it is definitely key to focus on housing affordability as a fundamental driver of economic security in California. Um, some important data to highlight here that the Budget Center um, has, through the Budget Center's work, is that the burden of California's housing affordability crisis really falls most heavily on Californians with low incomes and Californians who are renters, and Californians of color, especially Californians who are Black, Latinx, Pacific Islander, and American Indian. And so these are the Californians who are the most likely to be paying an unaffordable and an unsustainable share of their incomes for housing. Um, so while the recommendations in the um, Cato report mainly focus on removing regulations that slow or prevent the construction of new housing, um, so definitely agree that California needs to increase the supply of housing. I mean, this is really critical to addressing the root cause of our housing affordability crisis. But in doing that, it's very important also to stay focused on the question of who are the Californians who are most harmed by the housing crisis. And that is, again, Californians with low incomes and Californians who are renters. So when we're talking about expanding the housing supply, what we most urgently need to do is expand the supply of rental housing that is specifically affordable to families and individuals with low incomes. Um, and it's just, I think, not realistic to think that the market 
will provide enough of that kind of housing um, just, just by increasing the overall supply of housing um, or um, just increasing housing in general. We really need um, to go beyond that to ensure that the housing is available for the people who need it the most. So I think something missing from these recommendations is recognition that there is an important public role to proactively and specifically incentivize and directly invest in and require local accountability for increasing the supply of housing that is affordable to Californians with the lowest incomes. And then I think it's also important to pay attention to issues of gentrification and displacement and just take into consideration how policy changes will affect existing communities, um, particularly when those communities include significant numbers of residents with low income and residents of color. So, you know, it's, it's definitely important to increase California's housing supply. But I think another key fact um, in the arena of housing that we really need to account for is that any strategy to increase housing supply takes time to produce new housing units at scale. And in the meantime, there are millions of Californians right now who are struggling to keep up with the rent and at risk of falling into homelessness. So to address the needs of those Californians, we need another set of policies. Um, we need policies that are really focused on meeting the needs of tenants. So policies that do things like ensure that tenants can enforce their legal rights in order to maintain stable housing and ensure that tenants' interests are supported in an equitable way in cases where they are in tension with the interests of landlords because landlords generally come to the table with significantly more money and power in those kinds of relationships, right? Um, with respect to homelessness, um, something I think we can definitely agree about is the real urgency to address this crisis. At the Budget Center, we really believe this is urgent because of the intense human cost of homelessness and its serious racial equity implications as well. Um, so experiencing homelessness, there's just so much research that demonstrates that it just has devastating effects on individuals' physical health and mental health and ability to engage in work or school or community. And Black Californians in particular bear a tremendously inequitable burden of homelessness. And so uh, it's really encouraging to see in this report the recommendation to reverse the efforts to criminalize homelessness. Definitely agree that this is an area that needs attention. Um, but in terms of the overall recommendations, I think that is a critical piece that is missing. Um, and that is the recognition that we have a full toolbox of strategies and interventions that we know are effective in helping people exit from homelessness and then maintain stable housing. So these are strategies like housing first approaches and rapid rehousing, um, permanent supportive housing for people who have significant physical or mental health needs, connecting eligible individuals with disability benefits, deploying housing vouchers strategically. So what has really been missing is an adequate level of ongoing financial support to be able to implement these solutions to homelessness. Uh, so we have the tools to effectively end homelessness. What we really need to do is commit the public resources on an ongoing basis to be able to support implementing those tools at the scale that meets the need. So those are, those are my thoughts about, about housing and homelessness in terms of the Budget Center's perspective. Um, I'm going to turn next to the second of the three areas that uh, I'll be speaking about. So that's the safety net programs. Um, so again, what we're really talking about here is the functioning of the public safety net that helps make sure people can meet their basic needs. And that's really much broader than the quote unquote welfare as most people think about that term. Um, and so I think a really key point to emphasize here, which is included in the report, but I think it really does need to be re-emphasized, is that the public safety net right now does very important and effective work to keep people out of poverty and to help make sure that Californians are able to meet their most, most basic needs, even if they run into an unexpected crisis or face serious ongoing challenges that mean, they, mean that they need some support to be able to make ends meet. So there would be literally millions more Californians in poverty without the support of the public safety net. And I'm talking here about supports like CalFresh food assistance, social security and SSI benefits, refundable tax credits like the earned income tax credit, housing subsidies. Um, so this is really important. And with the high cost of living in many parts of California, we just know that there are so many people who are barely getting by from month to month. And that is true for people who are working. And it's especially true as well for people who are, who are workers who have been hit by a job loss or seen their hours cut back, especially during this pandemic, or for seniors who are trying to get by on a fixed income. 
for someone who has an ongoing health problem or someone who faces a family emergency or a rent hike or some other crisis. So not surprisingly, the vast majority of Californians who find themselves in need of support from the public safety net are people in working families, Californians who are seniors and or who have disabilities or people who are dealing with some kind of unexpected financial or personal crisis. And so when we're talking about how well the public safety net is working, I think it's important to be really clear that it's not that we have a dependency problem in California with our safety net. The problem that we have is a cost of living problem. And that is why it's critical that we maintain our existing public safety net programs and really work to improve them to make sure Californians in need are not falling through the cracks. Um, so one point of alignment, I would say, is that we at the Budget Center agree with the idea that cash payments are one of the most efficient, um, efficient and effective ways to provide support to people who are, who are in poverty. Um, unrestricted cash is really powerful by providing people with the flexibility to spend the dollars where they specifically need those dollars to meet their basic needs. And it also respects the dignity of people in poverty by trusting them to know how best to use the support to meet their needs. And um, we also would agree that one good way to distribute that kind of cash support is by boosting investment in the state's refundable tax credits, like the state's earned income tax credit, the Cali ITC, and I would add as well the state's young child tax credit. Um, refundable tax credits are just a very powerful tool at both the state and federal level to direct cash to Californians with low income so that they can meet their basic needs. And there are also some technical advantages of tax credits that make them a really good policy vehicle for that purpose. One um, key point though that I would emphasize is that if you actually want to reduce poverty and inequality, then any investments in boosting refundable tax credits or any other safety net investments really need to be new investments that add to the support that's available through the existing safety net. Just reshuffling funds from one program to another is not going to reduce poverty in a meaningful way. And on top of that, I think it's really important to understand that the existing safety net programs are largely structured as a partnership between the federal government and the state government, and in some cases, local governments which means that in many cases, state policymakers do not have the discretion on their own to just swap from funds from one program to another. So I would say overall um, that we at the Budget Center agree that it's a great idea to boost cash support to Californians who are struggling to make ends meet and that doing it through refundable tax credits makes a lot of sense and that that investment should come on top of our investments in the existing safety net which is already doing important work to keep people out of poverty. And then that is the path towards making a real difference in reducing poverty. And so finally, um, just to briefly touch on the area of economic inclusion, I'll say first that um, definitely agree that economic growth will do little to reduce poverty if all the benefits from that growth go only to those at the top of the economic scale. It's a direct quote from the report and I definitely think that that's a strong statement. Um, I would say generally we at the Budget Center would highlight different solutions to that challenge for the most part. Um, for example, um, we would agree that childcare is definitely essential to economic inclusion. I mean, California faces major challenges in terms of an inadequate supply of childcare and especially childcare that is available to workers, uh, sorry, that is available and affordable to workers with low incomes. And this problem especially affects women workers who are more likely to have primary responsibility for childcare otherwise. And it also especially affects workers of color who are disproportionately represented among the workers earning low wages that make it hard to afford childcare, especially high quality childcare. But if we want to reduce families' childcare costs and increase the supply of childcare, what we need to do is directly invest public resources so through things like subsidies for families and grants for providers, investments to develop the childcare workforce, really all of these kinds of things together. And that is really the policy approach that would be most effective to address this challenge. And it's the kind of investment on top of this um, that would really more than pay for itself in terms of increased employment opportunities for workers with caregiving needs, increased employment opportunities for workers providing that childcare, um, and if we make sure that we do pay attention to the quality of childcare so that it supports children's developmental needs, then also improved health and well-being and school readiness for those children and increased ability for them to participate in the workforce when they become adults. Um, so that's the kind of investment, the kind of public investment that really has um, benefits not only for the people directly affected, but also for society at large. 
Um, so that really concludes my remarks. Um, I haven't addressed every topic and every policy proposal that's included in the report, but I'll stop here in the interest of time and focus and just to conclude with some final thoughts. Um, and that is to just come back to where I started, which is to say that we do have a real opportunity right now, I think, to focus on California's challenges with poverty and inequality and to really take concrete steps through public policy to tackle those challenges. Um, you know, again, we at the Budget Center would highlight some different and additional policy approaches um, that we think address the problems uh, more effectively, and, and in particular, better meet the needs of the Californians who are directly affected. But, um, but also stepping back to look at the big picture, um, the fact that we're all here talking about this important challenge and having conversations about what our leaders can and should do to make a difference is definitely part of the work that we collectively need to do to move forward towards a future where all Californians are able to meet their basic needs. Thank you. Well, thank you, Sarah, very much and appreciate it and absolutely agree that the fact that we're having this conversation is the first step in solving the problem. So I really appreciate that and appreciate your being here as part of that. I'm going to turn it next over to, to Rob. Uh, tell us a little bit, kind of give us sort of a business perspective on this, but, uh, but it's much broader than that and some of the work you've done in the past on this. So appreciate it. Well, and I appreciate the opportunity with Cato, Michael, to be able to collaborate on, on some of these issues and to be able to look at you know, the body of work that's been done to be able to try and contribute to a broader understanding on uh, what we're doing to try and address some of these issues. Uh, Sarah's raised some very interesting points. I think I'm gonna provide you with a little bit of contrast maybe to some of her points and what we found from the business community. And what started with the round table is that we had at the direction of our board uh, actually done uh, some very similar work on these very same issues to be able to inform our board and the broader business community back in 2017 and 2018. Uh, that's why I'm especially appreciative today of this discussion because we uh, have gotten the opportunity to compare uh, some of these findings and the incredible similarities between our work even back then to the great work that you have done you know, with your work here uh, has just been you know, amazing and something I, I wanna point out. So number one, the absolute driver on these issues is the cost of living. There's no question. The pressure on Californians today to where we are because of the policy decisions that are getting made that directly impact our cost of living, especially housing, is directly translating into where we are with our poverty levels and where we are with our homelessness populations. Make no mistake about that, but it's not something that policymakers really wanna talk about because they're the ones casting the votes that are having the impacts of the costs on our lower income or more vulnerable Californians. If, if an average policymaker in the state legislature had their constituents know what some of the things they were voting on that was directly impacting their cost of living and what they're doing to their families, they'd be out. There's no question. Because when you look at where we are today, $5 a gallon gas, everything leads the country and our costs. At the same time, we can talk about, you know, business leaders' salaries, but we have a $15 an hour minimum wage. We are leading the country in increasing wages from the bottom up. But when your costs exceed what you're doing on the income side, you will never catch up. And as a result, we have what we have today. You can't keep up with the math. But let's look at a couple pieces on this. So cost of living drives the issue. When you look at housing, you know, housing first is a failure. For our homeless populations, we have got to be able to get shelters. We have got to implement uh, programs like reinstituting a redevelopment 
program with the cities and the counties to be able to create a catalyst to bring on more housing. But I guarantee you, from the business community standpoint, if there is the opportunity, the market will create the housing. But when your policies do not allow the housing to be created in a timely fashion or at a more reasonable cost, then we are where we are today. So that was unequivocally one of the greatest findings and the similarities you know, with our studies. Until we, again, address the pieces around the regulations on housing we, and on the homeless with the housing first policies, we're not going to truly make progress. We don't see the political will, but most importantly, we have solutions. There's plenty of solutions, but it's got to be driven from a different perspective. You know, it, it's interesting. And there was a recent story out where um, there was a study in 2020 uh, by HUD and the Homelessness Council at the federal level on housing first. And this national study said it fails. And you have never seen that study again. It disappeared, literally has been buried. I would ask each one of you to go out there and, and look for that, because we have it, but you can't find it anywhere else. Why is it failing? Because it doesn't provide for the preventative measures when you actually get somebody into housing to help address the homeless situation. And that's what we found with our studies as well in 1718. You've got to have a comprehensive approach. We've got to have shelter, uh, and then we've got to have preventive services. It's not just about housing. And housing, we can't even build at an affordable rate because the housing first policies are creating, obviously, costs of $500,000, $600,000 a door when you start to look to build some of these projects. Not sustainable. Not possible. We've got to rethink it from the bottom up. And we've got to acknowledge where something doesn't work, so let's figure out how to do it better and come in with the next policy that's truly going to make an impact in providing for those most vulnerable. And that's part of what we tried to bring out, you know, the, the social safety net. So a system of systems. I know we have a, a supervisor with us today, uh, important one from Riverside, you know, who, looked, who has to deal with this every day. So in our study and what we found, again, in such great comparisons, you know, we went out and talked to the vulnerable members of the community, those who were employed, those who were unemployed. And the single biggest thing they told us was, if we could just integrate the services under the current social safety net so they get one benefit that when they get that benefit, it drops them off the list for another benefit like childcare, which is number one, the biggest issue for services in order to try and bring somebody back who may not be employed into the labor market, they run into these roadblocks all over the place because they're not integrated in a way that they should be. So it's not a matter of just always putting more money into a system or putting cash on top of the existing system. It's about really managing what we have better. And it's tough work, as we know, because you're talking about federal, state, and local governments have to realign the, the current services. But what about starting with that rather than looking at processes like universal basic income, which have been tried so many times before and found they don't work. We, from a business community standpoint, categorically reject universal basic income. Why? Not that somebody doesn't deserve some additional assistance. It's because it layers on top of the current system and does not account for any reforms. You never hear the word reform in, in the system of systems. So let's start with the hard work from the policymaking side and then see maybe we need to increase you know, the benefits. We can support that if it's done appropriately, but if only if we know that they're aligned and they're being delivered in such a way that they're actually helping people. That's not the case today. So another big finding from our piece is the, you know, um, the other piece about on the income side, or the, Sarah mentioned the earned income tax credit. We totally support that. 
We have, from the roundtable, the business community, we have supported that from day one. We have asked and advocated for the governor to increase that with, you know, as we have budget surpluses, the one-time uh, spending. We've advocated for billions of dollars for that program. Why? Because we know it, for the most part, gets to where it needs to go. Because they can actually have a population that they've identified who are working but who are at you know, lower income levels and they get the assistance in a more efficient way. We support that. We, we continue to support that. But on the other services, when you compare that to universal basic income, we've got to realign our systems and reimagine them in a way that makes it much more efficient by integrating those services rather than just layering another piece of this on because you don't have enough money to be able to address all of the cash assistance that would come with a universal basic income approach. So again, just lastly, you know, the um, education side. Thank you for what you did with your study. The ability, we have got to look at, again, getting people into vocational education programs, building that pipeline, particularly now as we see this labor pool uh, and the shortages that we have. It's exposing some of the weaknesses that have been developing in our economy. Uh, but because of some of these policies, particularly with education, I think you called them out you know, very, very well. And it, again, is we are at a time where hopefully we will be able to, with the policymakers, look at this opportunity coming out of the pandemic to be able to truly address these things, the social safety net opportunities, but the education opportunities. If we don't start to change the education piece, especially with some of your recommendations, then we, the shortages are only gonna get worse and we are gonna find ourselves you know, with an economy where we're not gonna be able to provide the basic labor services, starting with truck drivers that you see today. That didn't pop up because of the pandemic. That started a long time ago when, again, we aren't building these systems to build this pipeline. So with that, just a couple observations. Look forward to having the opportunity for more discussion. Thank well, you thank very you. much. Really appreciate it. And yes, we certainly uh, drew on some of your earlier work on this and uh, very much appreciated on this. Mike, I'm going to turn over to you to kind of bring this. We've had some disagreements here, and maybe you can knit it all together. Yeah. I play that role a lot. Um, <laughs> and, and there's been really, uh, really substantive, really deep um, uh, conversations about specific policies from the last two speakers. Um, and so I might, you know, kind of take it to a little bit more of a, a spiritual level. And by saying something that is going to be both unpopular in this room and pandering to it at the same time. And that is that uh, political factionalism is a poisoning of the mind and is acid for civil society. The idea that there is only one way to approach the sets of problems that we have in society is a big problem and is now playing out in all sorts of terrible ways. There was just a piece in the San Francisco Chronicle today about how the Newsom recall uh, results show a state that's even more polarized than it has ever been. Polarized by region, polarized by race ethnicity, polarized by income level. This is a problem. So that might be unpopular in this room because I understand this is an ideological faction that we're dealing with here, libertarians, um, you know, but no more than anybody else. But I'm actually here to praise you because I think that Cato being here in California, you're putting out this deeply substantive report is really important to get a broader set of solutions on the table for these critical problems. So I am so glad that you're doing this event. I'm so glad that you did this report. And it's just very thoughtful. Like you've thought very carefully about the Venn diagram of what are the ideas from the libertarian universe that could have some traction in California, right? So I, I, there's a lot, we can get into some of the specifics of it, but, but I appreciated that this report was done. I appreciated that you're focused on California. I think it's useful for deepening and broadening the public dialogue on these things. 
Um, so, I mean, in terms of some of the specifics of the report, again, I thought it was really great. I, you know, I have to agree, uh, you know, with uh, Rob on a couple of things. One, and this is just as an evidence-based organization, right, which we are, which others claim to be, poverty in California is a cost of living problem, right? Like, we have very high wages relative to other places, we have very high spending, we have very high taxes, and yet we have the highest cost of living adjusted rate of poverty. Now, I don't think that the taxes and the spending have caused that poverty, but as somebody that cares about reality, you have to step back and ask if we have more and more and more spending, taxes, poverty, and there are areas where there is less spending, fewer taxes, and lower levels of poverty, and by the way, better racial equality. California, to our great shame, talks a tremendous amount about race equity. You cannot walk into any conference room anywhere in this entire state without hearing about race equity. And it is at the center of what my organization does. We care about it tremendously. I talk about it all the time because it could not be more important. However, we don't have the statistics to back up our certainty that we understand this better than other places because we have higher levels in many cases of racial income inequality and racial wealth inequality than in many other states that we consider the benighted, like, you know, terrible places of the world that bad people come from, right? Yet, they have better results to show than we do. So, that isn't to say, you know, that I'm saying that one speaker is right and one speaker is wrong, but what I'm saying is we need to approach these problems with a significantly greater level of humility than we have. And we need to approach these problems with a significantly great, greater level of asking questions and being willing to get different answers to them. We have this weird, I mean, if you think about like uh, different policy approaches as like tools in a toolbox, right? We have like team paintbrush and team hammer, <laughs> right? And some people are like, it always has to be paintbrushes. Paintbrushes, paintbrushes, right? But, the problem becomes when you've just elected team paintbrush and you have a bunch of nails in front of you, right? Or you've just elected team hammer and you have to paint the damn house, right? Policy questions need to really be substantially more thought of as like challenges to solve, drawing from all the various different tools that we have at hand. And so I am so glad that Cato has put out this report, that you are reminding people that there are some other tools in that toolbox you could pick up and paint the house with, right? And, um, and so I just really appreciate what you've done here. And you know, these are hard issues, and I, I just really appreciate the first speakers acknowledging that the fact that we're all talking about poverty and trying to engineer a better solution to it is an important opening that we need to take advantage of. Thank you. Well, thank you, and uh, I have to say I appreciate all the work that California Forward has done uh, in terms of fostering genuine uh, civil dialogue uh, on issues and stuff. Obviously, we don't always agree and stuff like that, but we certainly have had some good conversations, and, uh, and that's an important step. Thank and you. So we, we appreciate uh, the work you've Great. done on this, and we look forward to working with you again. All right, we're going to, uh, to open it up to some questions. Once again, if you have any questions out here in the audience for any of our three speakers, we'll bring Sarah back. Uh, and we have so we have questions for any of our three speakers, uh, both here uh, online. Uh, your last chance to get in some questions uh, if you have them. Uh, once again, on any of our, our uh, platforms, the Cato event page, Facebook, YouTube, or Twitter, using the hashtag Cato California, you can bring them in, and uh, Kelly will relay them to us. Uh, with that, I'm going to open it up. Anybody have any questions? I'll have one over here. Um, from Central Valley, <clears throat> and I work with schools trying to promote workforce development uh, here in Sacramento. And one of the things that um, you hadn't mentioned yet, maybe you have some insight into, is the um, 
student, student loan debt and how that is impacting so many other families and not being able to move forward. Um, so can someone speak to that? Open up to all three of you. Why don't you on this one? Student loan debt. Anybody? I don't like it. <laughs> but I mean, I think, I, I think this is the critical thing. I mean, um, this is why people talk about equity. This is why we talk about equity. Because like, there are some people that um, start so far behind, right? That it's not like you can just say like, oh, you know, you know just work a little harder, right? We talk about vulnerable communities. We don't talk about the fact that it is systems that have made people vulnerable, right? And we might have different views on what those systems are and what the reform should be, right? Um, but whether it's student loan debt, whether it's access, uh, you know, as the first speaker said, to affordable quality childcare, right? The, there are people who have private safety nets, right? We talk about the public safety net. We don't talk about the private safety net. There are a lot of people who have private safety nets who are able to have their families pay for their education, who are able, like I live in the Bay Area. Let me tell you, if you do not have your parents providing you a down payment on your loan, you are a literal millionaire, <laughs> right? Like there are, you know, it is extraordinarily challenging, but you know, there are people that have private safety nets and that don't end up with a tremendous amount of debt. And these are things we need to think about extraordinarily carefully, especially when it's as a result of something we desperately want people to do, which is get educated and get skilled to participate in the economy. I don't know if Sarah wanted to say something, otherwise I can add on to something here real quick. Yeah, well, Rob and then Sarah. Okay. So when we went through our research at the roundtable, and in trying to take a deep a dive as possible in understanding those dynamics of where the education fit in overall for people's lives across so many different communities, you know, it, it's, it was fascinating for us, and we were watching for it, but the debt issue was mentioned, but not as a driver. It was more about the access piece coming in on the front end than it was more about the back end, the accumulation of debt. So the, you know, as the policies have changed, particularly for community college now on the front end, hopefully the transfer piece, but some of the cost pieces, uh, ideally make it more, you know, uh, give more opportunity. But we, we did not see that come out on the back end with, as, as a big issue. Sarah? I think, thanks for that question. I think um, a really important connection to make with respect to that question is just one of the key drivers of people ending up with uh, an amount of student loan debt that is beyond what they can afford is, again, California's cost of living. A lot of the um, costs that are really associated with accessing higher ed education in this state are the you know the cost of living while you are attending educational um, you know training while you're attending college and that is one of the reasons it can be a real barrier to making sure there's equitable access to higher education and training and the kinds of um, school that will create more opportunities for individuals to advance in you know it, into higher higher paying jobs and really achieve stronger economic outcomes and so um, I think thinking about cost of living in how financial aid programs are structured and thinking about cost of housing in how um, educational costs are conceptualized. So as we think about policy solutions, I think all that is really important to keep in mind. And, and actually just one other thing to add to Sarah's point, the, I think what, what we did find, and I should mention is that a lot of the communities dropped out of education before the debt accumulated is the bottom line. And so particularly because of the drivers, as Sarah mentioned, uh, they just they, they couldn't stay in. So as a result, it, it didn't accumulate to that level where it got them on the back end. So they were just out, and then they had to go figure it out. Let, let me ask a question based actually on something Micah said that, that sort of jogged me here. Uh, I write about it in, in my book, uh, in mandatory book plug here for the inclusive economy. It, there's copies available outside. Uh, but, uh, but it was, why, why are people poor? What causes people to fall into poverty? I mean, there's two sort of dis academic schools out there. One side 
sort of blames the individual, the culture of poverty, that people make poor decisions in their life. The idea that if you don't, you know, they're based on the success sequence, that if you finish school, get a job, don't have children outside of marriage, you're not likely to be poor. Statistically, those things hold up, but there's, you know, a lot of chicken and egg to that. And then the other side looks at the more structural issues in our society, our history of racism, gender-based discrimination, uh, the dis economic disruption that's, that goes on with globalism, uh, which provides a lot of good stuff, but also, you, you know, if you lose your job, you are badly affected, even if the society is much better off through trade and, and, and immigration and so on. So, uh, so the, where, where do the three of you come down on what is it that's, that's causing people to be, fall into poverty? Well, I mean, like, Anybody. why is it an either or? Like, it's a weird thing. Like, yes, we should have a robust public safety net for, that's well tailored to the needs that people have. We need to address structural racism. And people should work really hard and make good choices. Like, these are not actually in conflict. Like, one does not prevent the other from happening. That's what, but. I, I do reject the, um, the, the general idea that people are poor by virtue of, um, you know, only their poor choices, right? I mean, I, I, and, um, but, but, but again, these are two things that are being held up as opposites that are actually complementary with each other. And that we can have strong families, and we can have strong character, and we can have strong values, and we can have a strong social safety net. So, I mean, that's kind of a California forward answer, I realize, <laughs> but I actually also really believe it. You know, Sarah, Rob, either of you have sure. weigh in? Sarah? Yeah, I mean, I think I would just say, I just really would want to emphasize the point that people who are living in poverty in California make good choices and, you know, work hard. I mean, this is, again, what we've been talking about today is the high cost of living in California, we can all understand every Californian, people who aren't even in California can understand how challenging it is to just keep a roof over your head and make ends meet from month to month if you're working at a low wage job or if you're on a fixed income. It's just the, the cost of living is really what drives the precarity there, right? But I think a more fundamental question too is, you know, regardless of how someone fell into poverty, I think there's a a, a collective responsibility to make sure that people are not falling through the cracks and unable to meet their most basic needs. I mean, meeting basic needs, I mean, it's a criti critical for the individuals affected. And it also, it it's, has, you know, long-term effects on employers and on, you know, children when they grow up and become workers in the workforce. I mean, there's just society benefits when people are not facing crises that's that are causing them to not be able to meet their basic needs. And it's really important for individual Californians to know that you know, a, a crisis of some kind is not gonna cause them to literally fall into homelessness or hunger in a state that as, as, has as many resources um, you know, and as strong an economy as California does, I think we shouldn't have to have people who are experiencing that level of deprivation in our state. So, so I agree certainly with my colleagues. I think they said it well. Let me, if I could, just one additional point. Because, so the causes are one thing, the solution then to us is, is what's really key. And the social safety net, critically important, and, and those programs. But from what we have worked on, from what we have found, is the single greatest tool, not a brush or a hammer, but just one of those multi-purpose tools in the toolbox. Okay, cool. Uh, is home ownership. That issue can break the cycle because if we can get someone in a home and they have a job and they build equity in that home, suddenly over generations we know and we see that they can provide for their kids' education in the future, they can provide for their retirement, they have something that truly defines a break from potentially previous generations. And that is why, and we're not talking about, you can't do that with apartments, ladies and gentlemen, let's be clear, it has to be a home. And that's why we believe that home ownership is absolutely the singularly most important issue moving forward to be able to help break that cycle, but it is the path to wealth creation in our country. And it plays out you know, within, obviously, our most vulnerable populations. So 
that's something that, that we focus on quite a bit. Yeah, li likewise. I mean, home ownership is really important. The ability to grow a business is really important. You know, we think about the impact of California's extraordinarily complicated labor laws. If anybody has ever been any sort of small business, or for that matter, small nonprofit organization, you know, it takes a tremendous amount of resources to navigate what you're actually supposed to be doing, and it, we make it very difficult for people to grow wealth through owning homes or through growing businesses in this state. Um, but, you know, I mean, these things about like home ownership and housing first and so on and so forth, the point is kind of moot. Because you would need some houses, right? <laughs> would That's housing first worse in California? Who knows? There are no houses to find out with, right? <laughs> would it be good to have much more home ownership for race equity? Yes, it would. But the point is moot, because there aren't any houses, right? <laughs> the politics of scarcity are not the politics of equity. It's something that I think is extraordinarily important for people to understand. And the, you know, when we talk about structural discrimination, we talk about a certain demographics, we talk about white people, we talk about people having access to a period of time during which there was tremendous growth. And then we slammed shut the portcullis of wealth creation in California, right? Under various, you know, oh, you know, climate means or what have you. But guess what? There are, you know, twice as many people in the world as there were when I grew up, they're gonna have to be somewhere, right? <laughs> we cannot like put our hands, heads in the sand about the fact that there are gonna be people, they're gonna need houses or condos or apartments or whatever it is that they need. And I would like to see that be much more a part of the dialogue in California because too much of the dialogue in California, by the way, I don't think this is mainly the folks across the street. They're doing okay on housing. <laughs> like the stuff they did this year was like, it was okay, right? <laughs> Housing is fundamentally a local issue in California. And the localities, you know, are whether they're, and this is not a partisan issue, by the way. There are Democratic NIMBYs, there are Republican NIMBYs, there are NIMBYs of every demographic group, right? <laughs> but um, the result is a trickle of new homes, which means we can't address homelessness, we can't address home ownership, we can't do any of these things. And that is a fundamental issue, and so I'm glad you raised it in hey, your report. And I mean, that's also the pathway to the middle class, right? So if we're gonna provide that lift up, so it's no mistake that we lost 650,000 people from California uh, in, you know, in the last year and a half, two years, uh, because a large part of it is because of this exact reason. There's no path. And so we're talking about lower income uh, workers, they had to move, they moved to other states, and the minute they get that house, they start moving up the ladder. And that's what we're seeing. Yeah, I'm hearing California increasingly described as a sort of feudal society where you have wealthy enclaves at the top and then you have poor people at the bottom and the middle class is simply being hollowed out, yeah. right. increasingly by policies. Right. Any more questions either from the audience here or online? I want to make sure that we're, I'm not monopolizing the, the questions here. Yes, Jeff. Yeah, I have one for Sarah. And um, Sarah, you're very well spoken. You're very passionate about your views and, and such. But with that said, most of your answers included more investment or, or more money to, to follow through on these, these policies. Um, and I think, I think we all have the same idea that more money going into a policy that's working is a good thing. However, we got to look at the other side of the ledger. And as we know, our budget is set up really, really lopsided based upon that top 1% on their state income taxes, as high as 10 or 12%. I believe as much as 60% of our $200 billion uh, budget relies on that. Now, the governor had a $70 billion windfall. Turns out people like to spend money when they're stuck at home, you know, in, in a pandemic. But half of that 70 was going to go to schools, and then we have close to a trillion dollars in total public employee unfunded liability on our pensions. I mean, it's, it's really, really bad. So when we do see this fall in the stock market, and we will, whatever goes up will come down, that, that, that budget and that income source is so based on that, that, that somewhat quirky uh, factor, what do we do and how do we make it on less money and still keep those, those, those so important programs going? That was a long question, but sorry. Yeah, that's a, that's a great question. Um, thank you for raising that. Um, and I, 
I think um, it's a great question that you raise in particular because we're also, another topic that we are focused on here today, right, is inequality. Um, and I think the way California's tax system is structured, um, I think personally is a smart way to structure uh, state revenues in an era where inequality is rising increasingly. If you look at what's happened with people's incomes over the last several decades, the, the incomes for the, the Californians at the top end of the spectrum have increased substantially. Um, that's especially true if you look at tax data, which incorporates things like capital gains, right? Um, incomes for people at the middle and lower end of the spectrum have really stayed flat after an inflation or even gone down in some cases. And so um, one of the ways that you can address inequality is just by being fair, having fairness in the tax system. And that means among the people who have benefited the most from this, the California economy and the profits that have increasingly gone to those at the top, that they should pay their fair share to help support the economy overall and Californians overall, because we know that even the workers who are working at low wages, who are providing childcare, who are maintaining the roads that people are using, who are doing all of the critical work that's important for supporting California's communities and California's economy, um, you know, they have also contributed to this economy, but they have not seen as much of the benefits. So um, in terms of the volatility that you talk about, in terms of the fact that when uh, the stock market is doing well, when people's incomes are doing well, California has more revenues coming in. Um, if the stock market does not as well, then the, you know, California's revenues will drop. I think an important thing to note is that there is a mechanism within our state budgeting process that is designed to account for that. And that is our safety net, uh, sorry, our, our reserve systems, our rainy day fund and our other reserve funds. Um, and specifically, I know something that the policymakers think about a lot, um, especially the in the legislature when they're doing the budgeting, um, right? And in the governor's office when they're working on the budgeting is how is making sure that those uh, rainy day funds and reserve funds are funded. I mean, they're legally required to fund them. And in many cases, they've put extra funds in there in, in cases where there's been opportunities to do that in order to make sure that when we get to a year where revenues are not as strong, we don't have to make cuts to the programs that the resources will be there to help um, to, to maintain the, the services that are really needed, especially because we particularly need those kinds of public supports in a time when the economy is not doing as well, right? So I think actually California really stands out as a strong example among state budgets as a, a way where there is a strategy to both have a tax structure that is more fair, right, in terms of asking those who have benefited the most and can give the most to pay their, you know, do their fair part in supporting the economy overall that has gotten to them to where they are. And at the same time, having, you know, a responsible, uh, thoughtful mechanism in place to make sure that our state revenues and our state um, spending can, um, you know, can be structured that way and still function in times when revenues go up and down. We're almost down out of time. This I just want to give everybody, give you like 30 seconds each if you'd like to just kind of sum up uh, your thoughts on, on this. Uh, if you were, you know, kind of king and queen for a day, how would you, you know, what would be the one thing you would do maybe to fix things? Well, maybe I'll just, just quickly to piggyback on that, like absolutely agree our tax system needs to be fair. But better than redistribution is distribution, right? Like we're making the best of a bad situation having some ridiculously rich people and a bunch of people that are barely getting by. I would not like to see that. I would like to see a bunch of people doing well, right? And that's something that we don't, we think an awful lot about redistribution in California. We don't necessarily think enough about home ownership. We don't necessarily think enough about business growth. We don't necessarily think enough about career pathways. We don't think about like those economic strategies that are really going to create good jobs. We chase manufacturing jobs out of this state. We chase high wage jobs out of this state. And ultimately then we end up with a like terrible situation where we have to go to 1% of the people for 50% of the money. But it's a right. bad situation that we created and that we could make different choices and have a different situation. So um, then we'll give Sarah the last word. On 30 seconds, and I, I would qualify one point in all that, which is it's not that we don't think about it, it's that we don't act on it. There's <laughs> not the enough. will, because we certainly think about it, and your points are very well taken. Uh, on the tax piece, I just want to throw in, too, it equally needs to be reformed like the social safety net pieces. It's crying out for reform because of that volatility. Now, the, the rainy day fund 
was a very good tool to be able to lessen some of that volatility because we, you know, fortunately under Governor Brown putting some of that money in the bank, that helps smooth out some of the volatility. But the minute, as we know, the day of reckoning will come, as it always does, and then what? And then it, we got to start raising taxes on everybody else, and the whole cycle starts over again. So we need to have an honest, frank approach and, quit and take a look at reforming the system. Sarah, 30 seconds to finish up. Last word. I think I'll just, I'll just say that um, I think it's really important that we, just, we keep in mind through all of these conversations the human face of who is affected by these problems. You know, keep in mind the, the families and the single adults and the workers and the seniors who are the ones who are right now struggling to make ends meet. Um, so, you know, there is a lot that we can do. Again, I think we don't necessarily among all of us here agree on all of the solutions, but there are some where there's alignment and it makes a lot of sense to, you know, certainly pursue those and just, you know, again, keep in mind the fairness of the system overall um, and doing, you know, what we can to make sure that the Californians with the lowest incomes who have been in many ways left out of a lot of the prosperity that California has seen over the last several decades. Um, just make sure that as a society, we are taking care of, you know, of our fellow Californians and making sure that people are not going without the ability to make ends meet um, in a, at a time when, again, we have the resources to be able to take care of that. Thank you and amen. Thank you. And address the cost of living. Yeah. Appreciate it very much. Thank you. Thanks a lot. Thank you.